Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. gas pricing, I've got a few comments that Mike and I went over earlier. Mike may interject with questions, but basically oil is going to be helped enormously if everywhere in the world, not just the U.S., but also Europe and Asia doesn't do lockdowns. And Omicron is clearly way more contagious than Delta or any of the early variants. And, you know, lockdowns are a possibility, but the IEA are predicting that this isn't going to affect oil demand too much. So you've, you've had oil start to move back up. The backwardation, you know, was $10, more than $10 became less, but came less the wrong way. The current price came down. So, I think the oil price looks pretty well established. The striking thing, and I'm sure you've noticed if it's in papers now and, and digital media, the price of LNG in Europe is over $50. Well, the BTU equivalency is six to one. In other words, six MCF for every barrel of oil. So if you multiply 50 by six, that's $300 a barrel. So just that will add some oil demand because obviously anyone who's making power, if they can make it with oil or anything other than using LNG, they will. Now, a couple of interesting things about that spike in LNG, obviously it's influenced by Russia's stance in the Ukraine and Russia's stance with NATO and the U.S. And of course, what Russia's saying is that they want red lines. They don't want any move towards making Ukraine part of NATO. They don't want NATO troops or U.S. troops in the Ukraine. They want U.S. and NATO to curtail adding military equipment to Ukraine. There's going to be a conference between Russia, NATO, and and the U.S. in uh, Switzerland soon after the new year. I think that probably means that the Russians will refrain from actually invading the Ukraine, at least until that conference is held. But what the Russians have done is they've stopped nominating gas from Gazprom into Europe. I think gas from from Russia is probably, I don't know, 30%, 35% of all the gas consumed in Europe. So the price has run up now. A utility, a German utility or a French utility, will be getting at least two-thirds of their gas on contracts, and the contracts will typically, if they're old, will be about 10% of the price of oil. So on $70 rent, uh, that would be, uh, you know, like nine, $9, $9.50, $10 gas. So here's the interesting thing in terms of how regulators and governments react. European regulators are very likely to tell the European utilities that they cannot 
raise the price of electricity because the price, the spot price of LNG has gone up, what they'll say is eventually it'll go down and you'll recoup the money. But we don't want the ratepayers to pay more. Impact on U.S. natural gas is that it's been way too warm and near month gas pricing, which is by $56, has come back down. The out years, 23 and 24, are holding pretty pretty well. So the backwardation is less because the near month has come down. It is going to get cold. I mean, count on it. So that will be repaired. The strip for 21 is held up pretty well. Think of it this way. Gas in 2020 averaged about $2 Henry Hub and gas in 2021 averaged about $4. I mean, that's a huge improvement. So the other thing is the incremental demand, total demands around 90 feet. Incremental demand is LNG, and LNG is running flat out uh, because of these high prices in Europe and, and pretty high prices in Asia as well. So of the 90 Bs of demand, about 13 is uh, LNG, and additional trains on the construction. It takes a long time to build an LNG train, but by 24, 25, the capacity will be like 15 and a half or 16. So, you know, this is pretty good situation for natural gas. Now, as an investor in natural gas, which I am in Yorktown, is one of the concerns is this government, which has been too progressive and has kind of been beaten back by Joe Manchin on Fox News last Sunday saying uh, he can't vote for this latest build, the Build Back Better plan. Progressives were outraged. And keep in mind that the senator here in New York, Schumer, who's majority leader, could face a primary challenge from AOC. So, I mean, he's pretty squirrely because... Who knows in New York, you know, what would happen in a primary. The staff who serves Biden clearly is trying to cater, trying to hold the Democratic Party together and, and, you know, try to give the progressives their due. And, of course, that's what Manchin complained about, is he just had had it talking to the staff. I guess the president called it Sunday night, and they agreed to talk and see if some parts of the bill could be resurrected as individual bills going through regular order in the Senate. One of the things you could do by executive action is you could put some kind of a limit on exports of natural gas because you thought that U.S. natural gas prices were too high and were getting to be, you know, resulting in power rates that were too high. Most U.S. utilities don't have the capacity to eat that increase. Most U.S. utilities have what are called fuel adjustment clauses, which means that if they pay more for the natural gas to make power, they pass it through. And so utility bills could become as big an issue leading up to the midterm as the price of natural gas is. And I am a little worried about industrial uses of natural gas and, and people worrying about uh, electricity bills, heating bills, and cooling bills in the summer, coming up with some plan where maybe we shouldn't export more than 10 days a day. That would be very unfortunate, and that would not be good for natural gas producers. We could do the same thing to oil exports 
but oil exports really wouldn't make a difference to the price of oil. I mean, we used to have our, our limit on oil exports, and you know, we import enough and export enough so that it, it probably wouldn't make too much of a difference. I am a little bit concerned about natural gas. In terms of interest rates, it seems inconceivable that we are going to have maybe not 6% inflation, but maybe 4% inflation, and we're going to continue to have a 10-year bond at 1.5%. I mean, how can that be? I mean, one explanation is the Federal Reserve has bought all these bonds, built the balance sheet from, you know, like four before uh, COVID to nine, and it probably should go back to two. I don't think it needs to be any bigger than two for the central bank to operate. Now, does this Federal Reserve have enough political independence to not only taper, in other words, stop buying new bonds, but by March, which is what they've announced, but then in April or something, say, we're no longer going to reinvest the interest coupons and the principal repayments, which would start to shrink it. Do they have the political independence to do that? Now, Jay Powell has been renominated, Larry Blainer, who the progressives wanted to be in his place has been renominated as, as vice chairman, and they will be, I'm sure, in January confirmed by the Senate, and they'll be in place. You, a, a president cannot remove uh, you know, Federal Reserve board members or the chairman or the vice chairman. So the question is, how independent will they be? I think that depends on how prevalent inflation is, um, and most people expect a pause. But you know the you know we'll see, and uh, the impact on the equity markets is hard to predict. I mean, uh, my favorite tech stock, and certainly Mike's favorite tech stock, is Nvidia. Uh, Nvidia has free cash flow, pays the dividend, has a strong balance sheet. But look at the valuation. So how do you how do you deal with this? The stocks you want to own, the ones you own, the ones you're interested in. You know, you don't have to worry about, I mean, they can finance themselves, but how do you deal with the valuation? And uh, Mike's got some comments on that, so over to Mike. Yeah, so the valuation on NVIDIA obviously is very high, but we're seeing high valuations across the board, especially in high growth technology areas. I think that I, I would just reiterate what, what you've said over the last few weeks is we want to focus on buying high quality companies and don't be fooled by traditional measures of value because they may not capture the whole value of a business. So part of what we do with fundamental side research is to try to understand what's not being captured in the numbers. And the example that I kind of keep going back to with NVIDIA is that what's not captured is their moat, why they have a sustainable pricing and margin premium relative to their competitors has to do with the software products for which they don't charge any money for, but inherently make their hardware products far more valuable than what's available to others. So while we look at the valuation of NVIDIA and say that it is very, very high, if you're a holder of it, I wouldn't be running for the door trying to sell it. That being said, I would, in the case of NVIDIA, I'd probably, and personally am, since I'm a holder of it, keeping an eye on the price and potential pullbacks. 
Obviously, the ARM deal is now sort of on ice, if you will, with the FTC objecting to it. You know, an interesting thing about that deal is it's worth about 75, maybe 70 to 75 billion dollars based on NVIDIA's current share price as to what SoftBank would get from it. The quick math on what they would get alternatively could pretty clearly no one else has come to the table with a, a suitable offer. So the next best opportunity is probably an IPO. If you take the average forward sales multiple of other companies in the semiconductor index, that would only be about 10x, which would value ARM at around $20 billion, which is that would be considered a complete failure on the part of SoftBank. So again, this is 20 billion versus the 74 billion that they're entitled to if the deal can close with NVIDIA. So it will be interesting to see how this shakes out. There's a lot of money on the line here. And I would assume that they'd be motivated to get it done. That being said, some of the analysts are very bearish on the situation. I've seen the, the most positive analysts that I've, I've read their reports about see it as a 50-50, whether it gets done still. Some have lowered their probability of getting it done to closer to 5%. So there's a lot of headwinds when it comes to that. With that, maybe if this thing gets nixed, there will be an opportunity to buy NVIDIA again at a better valuation. Still doesn't get away from the fact that it is a very good company. So two different conversations, quality of the business and the business model and the valuation at which you're willing to enter. Um, neither are particularly easy to pinpoint, but both important to your investment decision. Yeah, mostly in a situation like this, you'd worry that the seller would give up on the transaction happening. SoftBank clearly needs money there in the paper this morning borrowing $4 billion from Apollo, of all people, against their uh, Vision 2, their second effort to make all these venture investments. So they could obviously use the cash. But <clears throat> if Mike's right that the alternative is a IPO, and I believe when the deal was struck, the value was $40 billion. And everyone thought that was a pretty full value. And the reason it's gone from 40 to 70 is a fair amount of it is NVIDIA stock, and NVIDIA stock's blown up so much from the announcement. So rather than try to seek an alternative, if you're SoftBank and give up on having the transaction happen with that big gap between 10 or whatever and 70, chances are you'll just continue to stay in the contract and try to get to a situation where the FTC in our country decides to settle. Typically happens with antitrust cases rather than actually go to trial. They get ready to go to trial, but then they settle. And the way they settle, they say to NVIDIA and ARM, you know, you have to provide licenses for free or something. You know, they, they look for ways where they could you know, increase the capability of competitors to use the uh, the ARM designs and whatnot. Sometimes they'll say, like, if ARM has two separate product lines, they say, well, you can keep one or you have to sell the other. I, 
Mike could have to confirm this, but I think I think ARM is really one product line. One positive thing, if if you're a NVIDIA stockholder, or if you're the management of NVIDIA, it seems to me during this period of time, they have been collaborating under the theory that they will eventually be merged. And so NVIDIA has to have gotten some benefit from that just by way of how difficult it is to do one of these. NVIDIA and SoftBank and ARM not only have to worry about the FTC suit, but they have a similar action in China. They have an action in the UK where ARM is was founded. And I think they have a separate action in the European Union. So plenty of hurdles to try to clause to overcome. It may be that SoftBank and, the, and NVIDIA will just keep working with all these regulatory bodies and a year, year and a half, two years will go by. We'll be discussing this in the, you know, the end of not 21, but the end of 23 or 24. And NVIDIA will still, and SoftBank will still be working on trying to close it. With that, have I misstated or admitted anything, Mike, or in, in terms of the situation? No, I don't think so. I, I think the the best case scenario for ARM, should this deal not go through, is to adjust their business model to be a little bit more like Taiwan Semiconductor, in which Taiwan Semiconductor is a lot more ingrained in its partners. So Apple doesn't need to own Taiwan Semiconductor, for example. Instead, it's relationship with them is so intertwined in their ability to stay on the leading edge, it's a win-win situation for both. I could see a world where ARM could stand on its own if they adjust their business model. As of today, the business model isn't great, it's not super profitable, and it's going to require a lot more R&D. The picture for NVIDIA acquiring this is probably more likely than than some of the analysts are, are projecting. The last thing I'll say is I think NVIDIA stands on its own one way or another because NVIDIA can be in a position to develop that long-term relationship with ARM that gets them what they want out of the situation. Yeah. Just before we sum up on NVIDIA, Mike, I know you've done it in the past. You might just explain if, if NVIDIA and ARM close, the advantage to NVIDIA, as I understand it, would be to just create more products that would be competitive with Intel or ADM that would go into uh, server farms is basically what a what a competitor Intel or ADM is, is going to be worried about. Sure. It goes into quite a different product areas, but the, the concept is NVIDIA has this core technology for GPUs, and that that's some hardware technology, but really back to the most important thing about NVIDIA's business model, it's the software packages that go with it. So by having a licensing model where they can get more product out that potentially could leverage their software packages, they will do a better job of monetizing any licensing model. Now, with that, you're looking at the proliferation of edge computing devices, the advancement of mobile devices. These are all things that NVIDIA doesn't really play in today. So these are markets that NVIDIA is saying, we can bring technology leadership, expertise, and software to all of these different verticals. And if we acquire ARM, it'll be faster and easier for us to address those markets. 
I'm going to, in the few minutes we have left, I'm going to ask Mike a question we, we didn't discuss this morning, and I can't remember discussing it either in our visit ahead of time or on Wednesdays. And, and that is, I mean, clearly NVIDIA has benefited enormously from the founder being just a terrific manager. I mean, he has his competitors' regard and and customers' regard. The management a couple of years ago changed over at Qualcomm, and I just get the sense with I've never owned the stock and I really haven't pulled the company apart, but I get a sense that the new management at Qualcomm is developing a, kind of a similar regard from competitors and customers and whatnot. Now, Qualcomm, Mike and his family live in San Diego. Qualcomm is the biggest enterprise in San Diego several times over. And so Mike may turn out to be a little prejudiced in favor of Qualcomm, but how would you how would you rank the new management of Qualcomm and in terms of moving Qualcomm along in an effective way, positioning it to do better work for its customers and, and make more money? That's a good question. And I'll, I'll do my best to answer that. I don't know that I, I, I'm i not as up to date on the inner workings of Qualcomm as, as, as NVIDIA, but there's a few things that have happened. If you remember, Broadcom tried to acquire the company a few years ago, and there was a very public fight as to why that was a bad idea. It wasn't 100% clear at the time. Qualcomm was suffering because of their spat and loss of a significant portion of their their revenue from, I believe it was from Apple. So the stock was depressed. The outlook was dour. And Broadcom came in with a, a somewhat hostile takeover bid. They waged a campaign to, to keep the company from being taken over, and it's proven to be the correct decision. The threat that they promoted is that if we get acquired by Broadcom, they're going to squeeze our R&D budgets. We will not be able to push the industry forward, et cetera, et cetera. The naysayers were saying, well, you're not making enough money to justify your R&D budget. So from the perspective of that turnaround to where they are today, I think they've done very well. They've they have made <clears throat> some acquisitions in order to lessen their dependence on ARM in the future. That will be interesting to see if those play out well. The thing that I think that they've slipped up on most recently is their their largest competitor is a company called MediaTek. It's a Taiwanese chip maker. They were able to secure capacity on Taiwan Semiconductor's 4 nanometer node. That will make their processors better objectively than the Qualcomm processors. Qualcomm will still maintain its share of the highest end smartphones that are non-Apple, mainly because they have their own graphics chips and designs specifically for mobile, which also relates to why Qualcomm is against NVIDIA acquiring ARM because NVIDIA would very likely push some GPU technology into mobile phones, thereby leveling the playing field for Qualcomm. All that is to say is there's a lot of moving parts in this industry. One of the things that I'm challenged with the most when it comes to 
Qualcomm is just small number of customers that they have and how impactful any one of them is. Obviously, with any business, you'd prefer to see a diversification in customers where no one customer was greater than, say, 10%. That's not the case at Qualcomm. But doesn't mean it's a bad business. It is actually a very good business. More on that next week. I think I'm going to use the the break to spend some time on Qualcomm. Just before we before we break, Taiwan Semiconductor, who is you know absolutely essential to all this, does a remarkable job. I mean, Mike's much more familiar with the numbers, but I think their capital budget this coming year is thirty billion dollars, and they're going to do that all out of cash flow. The problems that is having wouldn't be problems if they didn't have the competition from Taiwan's company. I guess also Samsung. Remember, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, AMD, none of these people make their own chips. They're very, you know, the chips are made by Taiwan Semiconductor and by Samsung and Intel as part of a change in strategy is going to make chips for other people rather than just chips to their own design. It's absolutely crucial that these chips are, especially the high-end, high-margin ones that NVIDIA does or AMD does or some of the remaining business at Intel, it's absolutely crucial for just about everything we do to have these pieces of equipment continue to be reliable and get better. Just in closing, I mean, I'm a long-term Fastenal stockholder, and Fastenal doesn't have anything to do with chips or software or whatnot, but Fastenal's business is extraordinarily dependent on being able to service their customers. It's kind of like an old dog learning new tricks. Their use of the capability that comes from cloud computing and edge computing, as as I prefer to, enables them to do a better job for their customers, you know, providing screws and nuts and bolts and saw blades and whatnot than they used to. They used to do it through stores. They now have fewer stores, but what they do have is these inventory systems that customers, which are basically monitored on a real-time basis, and so that when you have an inventory at a customer and some parts are pulled to, um, you know, uh, Fastenal knows that on a real-time basis and replenishes the inventory. You couldn't do that without this kind of capability. So one way to think about, I mean, we're getting to the end of the year, so, you know, you're supposed to look ahead one year and really from an investment point of view, if you're looking ahead one year, you want to try to look ahead two, three, four years. Uh, It's hard to imagine that there won't be more demand for these chips, especially the point Mike made, chips with software that comes along with the product. The demand for these and the capability of this equipment will continue to increase. So next week, Mike said earlier, I, I said, is it time to make predictions at the end of the year? And I said, couldn't we wait? Till about the middle of February, so we see how Omicron goes. But but Mike and I, at least on these technical trends, both energy and then you know uh, the more 
technology stuff. We'll try to do our best next Wednesday. And with that, everyone have a good Christmas and stay stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care, everyone. joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.